Welcome to this special Tuesday edition of the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping other Christians think Christianly about all of life. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and as mentioned, it's a special edition today because this day marks two years since Pastor Aaron was first charged for opening his church. We wanted to talk today about the lessons learned from that, as well as remember this event, because like all of history, it's so easy for it to pass quickly into the rearview mirror and for the lessons learned to be forgotten. So I thought what I would do first is bring a quick recap to let our listeners know what led up to that time. And so track back with me to 2020, March, April, 2020, the pandemic had hit and the restrictions had been laid against the church and we were closed at that time. Aaron led our church through a series of four messages via Zoom, a a midweek message series, talking about the moral implications of a global pandemic and thinking through that. Shortly later, he, along with Dr. Joe Boot and others, penned a letter called the Reopen Ontario Churches Letter to the Premier of Ontario. In the end, that had 445 churches sign on and it led to the reopening of churches in Ontario. Throughout the summer, things were a little bit slower in terms of restrictions or a little bit looser, I should say, but the theological clarity around the role of church and state was being formed in Aaron's mind and uh, Dr. Joe Boots. And so together they co-authored the Niagara Declaration, a declaration on the liberties of the church in Canada from sea to sea. And that was really exploring and defining, I should say, the limits of church and state relationship. And that was signed by 280 churches, organizations, and elected officials. Then comes the fall of 2020. The restrictions started to mount again. Uh, Different mandates came in place, and it was clear that the state had no desire for collaboration or for giving even evidence of the, the legitimacy of their measures. And so when it became clear that we were headed for another lockdown, We had what you might call a crossing of the Rubicon moment. Uh, Aaron penned an article published November 25th, 2020 called A Call to Divine Obedience Over Civil Obedience. And that letter really, or that article rather, really stated the position of why now was the time for churches to resist this tyrannical overreach of the government and to, to open and the importance of seeking uh, to obey the Lord in that way. And so that was written by Aaron, but really accurately reflected the the views, the kind of consensus of our, our elders council as a whole. So then just a couple of weeks later, the lockdowns moved not from just the Toronto Peel region, but to Windsor. And we were headed for a lockdown. We knew it was coming and the elders decided we are going to stay open. And the church service on December 20th, 2020 was the first service, uh, two services that we held when uh, the lockdowns were in place and they went by uh, relatively uninterrupted. There was uh, the disturbing presence of two unmarked cruisers on the street, uh, but the services went on uninterrupted. Later that week, though, uh, an officer stopped by the church building and dropped off rather hesitantly a uh, court summons, which uh 
has to date been not tried in court um, and can be amounting up from $10,000 to $100,000 of a fine and up to one year of prison. Since then, Pastor Aaron has uh, received several more of those. And so that one does not stand alone. But maybe for a quick moment before we get into lessons learned from that, Aaron, could you just bring our listeners up to speed? Where are this, What's the status of those charges? I kind of alluded to that, but uh, could you let us know? Yeah, sure thing. Well, there's really not much to report. There was a time back in August where my lawyer asked if I would be prepared to settle for a nominal sum uh, in exchange for a guilty plea for one of those charges, I believe it was. And I just didn't feel comfortable with that. Uh, the The monetary fine and the threat of prison time are not important to me. What's important to me is the principle of the matter. And unless further information comes forward that I haven't thought about at this point in time or I'm not aware of, I don't feel comfortable pleading guilty to a charge that I think was illegitimate. I may very well be declared guilty by a court, but I don't want to be the guy to declare myself guilty in order to get an easy way out. So that was the suggestion. I kindly declined. And then there actually is a an appeal taking place. I think it's actually today, come to think of it, there's an appeal taking place to a charter challenge that was that was denied earlier in 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 the year uh, through and through with a couple of other churches, and so everything's kind of on hold. So nothing has been decided in court, and um, it's just kind of kind of a waiting game in that respect. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if, if we get into the lessons learned, one of the I guess first questions that popped into my mind when we were talking about this is the question of would you do it again? And I know in a sense, it's, it was a decision made by our elders and um, we don't have, we have times of change in some ways, but would you do it again? You personally, what's your take from that? Um, yeah, that, that's a good question. So when, when I make decisions as a leader, I'm, I always make decisions based upon what I know in the moment. And that's why I don't live with a lot of regrets because if I've made a decision based upon what I know in the moment, and that was a good decision, then if I get more information down the road um, that in a new circumstance may cause me to make a different decision, that doesn't mean I regret the first one. Mm -hmm. But with regard to my actions and the actions of our church back in December of 2020, no, I I don't regret it in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I think I even have greater clarity that I did the right thing. And this is why I I don't actually spend any time worrying about what the courts decide because their decision about whether it was just for the state to charge me or not charge me, frankly, in my mind is irrelevant because I know I did the right thing and our church did the right thing and our elders did the right thing because we, we stayed true to, I think, what is the most some of the most explicit commandments in scripture. And I think the state, uh, if they choose to try me and declare me to be guilty are just further, it sounds maybe hard for people to hear this, but they're just calling upon God to bring further judgment upon our nation. Because think about this. I called my people to worship. 
the risen Christ as I have done year after year after year. And I was charged for that. There's, there's no guilt in my mind whatsoever. People made the choice to come to church that day. I was their pastor. I called the people to worship. It was a collective decision by all of our elders. So I have absolutely uh, no regrets stemming from that decision. In terms of principles, well, I, I think there, there are some lessons that we can learn that I think I even, even have greater clarity upon now as opposed to then. So one would be that shortly thereafter, they threatened such draconian measures upon our entire congregation that our elders felt that to, to save our entire congregation from racking up potentially hundreds of fines all in one week, that at that point we realized that while the war wasn't lost, that little battle was, and it wasn't prudent for us to meet uh, inside of this facility. And we had to revisit that uh, after every following lockdown to see what the best plan was. Like you resist, you resist, you resist. But at some point, the fact of the matter is, is that the state has the power of the sword. They have the police, they have powers to arrest, they have powers to chain your building. They have all these powers. You have nothing because we were never advocating for any sort of physical violence or resistance. Mm -hmm. That's right. So at some point you realize, okay, how many of our people are going to get penalized? So we, we would withdraw and then at later points we'd resist and then we'd withdraw and make alternative arrangements. I think at this point in time, because I've seen the tyranny of the state manifested not only toward churches across the country, but also in Ottawa and uh, in, in uh, Windsor and in Coots, Alberta directed towards citizens, I think my my desire would be at this point to resist even further. So if that led to mass arrests or these sorts of things, again, there's a lot of variables in the moment because every lockdown had some different variables to it. Every situation was different. But I would be more inclined to resist even further mm -hmm. than I was back then because at some point, the state cannot be permitted to continue to get away with these kinds of ridiculous behaviors, you know, forbidding people from worship, forbidding people from, from um, working. Like back then, there were no vaccine, uh, as I recall, there were no, the, the, the coercion level of the vaccinations was a lot less. I can't even remember, did they even have the vaccines? In, in 2020, they didn't. Okay. No, it wasn't until spring, summer 2021, okay. I believe. Yeah, I, I hesitated there because things blend together so much. So I don't even think, in, in, my, in my recollection, we weren't even thinking about the medical side of this. But now we've seen the extent that the state will go to to continue to enforce their narrative and prove their point. I mean, it's interesting that there's been several articles and studies that have now come, in, come out in, in this scientific literature outlining the detrimental effect of some of these medical procedures upon people. And it's almost like the, the officials that have promoted their narrative aren't reading any of it because they're still doing their photo ops, getting their jabs with no disclaimers attached. In any other point in modern history, if you were to put out a pharmaceutical product, you'd have all your various side effects listed and all your warning labels. And this has just all been tossed to the wind, even though we now know that there's been numerous people injured through vaccinations. But 
that really wasn't on our mind at the time. Like the vaccine question wasn't on our mind. It was more, we were not going to tolerate the state continuing to treat the church of Jesus Christ with contempt, to treat it as a non-essential entity and to wield authority over the mission and worship of the Christian church. And because that conviction is even deepened in me more, if the state chooses to run the same plays in the future, I think they're going to be in for even greater resistance by Christian people who who are just not going to have it anymore. So there, there were some people that might have been sitting on the fence or thinking mm -hmm. through the issues in December 2020, and it's very clear in their mind now, it's not going to happen again. It cannot be allowed to happen again. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, the principle you extract for something like that is that, uh, you know, if you're just passive with the tyrant, it's not like they're going to back off, right? Yeah, I think that would be an accurate, uh, an accurate summary. T tyrants who have got their way are emboldened for greater tyranny. And if you were, for example, if you're listening to this and your church didn't resist and therefore wasn't penalized, that doesn't mean you've gotten away with it, so to speak. It doesn't mean you're free and clear because the tyranny that might have been directed toward our church may be directed toward your church or your business or your family in a different way in the future under different circumstances. Mm -hmm. So when you permit a state to tyrannize and to coerce and even to call people names who disagreed with them, even if in the moment you agreed with their narrative, on principle, you should disagree with their conduct because they will then take those same action steps against you and they disagree with you on a, on a future issue. So I think mm -hmm. there is a, a lesson there to be learned that it, it's almost like prior to 2020, the idea of just shutting down charter rights was unthinkable. The idea of police officers barging in and interrupting church services was unthinkable. The idea of imprisoning pastors was unthinkable. The idea of sending thousands of stormtroopers in to disperse people who are barbecuing and jumping on bouncy castles at the nation's capital was unthinkable, but now it's happened. It's been normalized and yep. a lot of people cheer had cheered them on mm -hmm. so that now they know they can get away with it. Now they know they can apply those same tactics to future crises. And it may not be this current administration that does that. It may be an administration that hasn't even been born yet, but now it's on the history books. Yep. And this is why the more we comply the more we create problems for future generations. Mm -hmm. So if some of our listeners may, may not be aware of, they might think they know, or maybe not, might not even be aware of why our elders chose to resist. Um, and so maybe you could share or just summarize briefly that for them. Yeah. Well, when I, when I first heard that there was a pending lockdown. I, th I think I might even have been in this room or just outside of this room. And I was talking with a few of you guys and someone mentioned that there might be a two week lockdown and I'd never heard of such a thing. It just was so foreign to my thinking. Um, you know, we, we went to live stream, which at the time I think was the right decision, but knowing what I know now, I would never do that again. I am so opposed to live stream church and online church. I think it is I think it is so destructive to the nature of what it means to be a worshiping community. And I think it creates the kind of Christians 
that are lazy are perceive of church as sort of a spectator sport are consumeristic and don't understand the incarnational benefits and blessings of gathering with God's people. It gives people the opportunity to side skirt church discipline, to fail to practice pretty much all of the one another's and to uh, fail to encourage people to serve others as they should be doing. So it's, it's, it's nasty on so many levels. I'm just so opposed to it. I, I just, th I think it's so wrong for us to even call online church church. It's not church. It's a recording of what happened in a church, but it's not, it's mm -hmm. not church. Um, so anyway, that's just maybe a little bit of a sidebar, but to answer your question directly in, in my mind, perhaps one of the first things that caused me to have deep, deep concerns about the lockdowns was actually pastoral in nature, maybe even a little bit more than theological. So what I mean by that is when I started to see new believers, so we had, we had baptized, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple people in particular, we had baptized some new people just prior to these lockdowns who were now completely isolated and alone back home with their non-Christian family members and really struggling to maintain their faith because they were so new, they were so fresh, and now they're sort of back in the lion's den. And one of them actually ultimately abandoned the Christian faith, which can, which still breaks my heart. So I saw that. I saw people struggling with loneliness. I saw people having to cancel significant events in life, whether it be attendance at funerals or baby showers or weddings or whatever it might have been. I saw the injustice of big box stores being allowed to suck up 100% of the business and the small businesses being forced to close, which still makes no sense to me to this day. It's just, it's just ridiculous. So for example, you, you, if you had a, if you had five small businesses selling shoes, one would think that if five or 10 people are in each store, you're going to have less viral spread, but they close them all down and they force those 50 people to all go to one store, one mm -hmm. big store. And then that big store gets all of the profit and these small stores get nothing. Like it's, it's so it's epidemiologically ridiculous strategy. And it, it just seems so unfair. And then if we compare the church, the big box store, the narrative was, Oh, okay. So we can have a couple hundred people at Costco or whatever other big box stores might've been open at the time. I don't recall, but, our church, which is over 38,000 square feet, is only allowed five or 10 people in it. Like it just seems so absurd. So that was bothering me. Um, and then as I started to think more about the theological implications of this, I taught that four week Wednesday night course online to our congregation, people would tune in. And I just started sequentially going through as many topics that I could think of that were relevant to this issue. So we did a, a, a biblical study on a theology of risk and reward. We did a biblical study on the Old Testament Levitical laws pertaining to quarantine. It, by the way, it's completely foreign to the scripture, the idea of quarantining healthy people. It's actually not in the Bible. It's contrary to God's laws. Um, we looked at the nature of the church and why we gather. We looked at the role of the state and on and on and on. So I penned the letter, Joe Boot joined me and we put that letter together. We, we saw the churches open. And so in summary, there was a pastoral concern. There was a theological concern. And I, I would say admittedly, Krista was also just irritation at the hypocrisy mm -hmm. from the state. So this was during the time when 
the BLM rallies were going on. And somehow it was okay for the mayor, for the chief of police, for the prime minister to violate the reopening Ontario Act to attend those because they were politically apropos, but not to allow for other functions. So that, that's just as, as a matter of historical record, why, why is that not being brought up in courts? Why is that not being, consider, being considered in the courts of our, our land? The very people that were advocating for lockdownism were violating the rules. We had politicians going to their cottages. We had multiple examples of politicians caught dining in restaurants or meeting with their family contrary to the reopening Ontario Act. But the, the lowly citizenry uh, had to comply and were being treated in a very heavy handed way. So those were, those were all factors that uh, led to our resistance to that second lockdown that took place in, in Ontario, in our region in December of, of 2020. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look back now and say, what were some of the most surprising things that you learned both positively and negatively? Like what, what kind of encouraged you that you weren't expecting or what discouraged you that you weren't expecting? And maybe you can go in either order. Well, some of the hard lessons would be just being reminded that in crisis, it's usually the minority that stand up and the majority do comply. I think that's been a pattern repeated throughout human history. It's very important for us to not decide what's right or wrong based, up, based upon majority opinion. That's a lesson to be learned because usually the, 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 it's the minority that will resist. And that's why there's a problem in the first place because the majority is okay with it. So even among Christian churches, the majority of churches were either silent or went along with it, or even actively promoted it, or went to the media and were speaking against our efforts and the efforts of like-minded uh, churches. So I think there's a lesson there. It also, there was a hard lesson in realizing the depth of corruption in the medical establishment. Mm -hmm. So I, I had um, some colleagues that were pretty deeply embedded in the medical system that were giving me reports contrary to what we would hear in the media but were sort of sworn to secrecy and silence because of their profession. It was helpful, by the way, at the time, you know, I was consulting with a couple of physicians and medical professionals to really understand what was going on and quickly realized that there was a ton load of exaggeration and that the quote unquote science was really more political science than it was science that was being promoted in the media. Um, there were personal trials, of course, so it, it was heartbreaking to see some people that I really loved in our church leave because they they didn't like our position and they they wanted to go to statist churches. And some of them um, have continued, in my view, to wander away from Christ. So that was a hard lesson. There was also around that time or maybe shortly after, I, I think in my own life, you know, we're all, no matter how tough we are, no matter how clear-minded we are, we all have breaking points. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a lesson for us to be reminded of. There's no supermen or superwomen around. And I'm a tenacious personality, but there was a point in time when I sort of just, humanly speaking, came to the end of the line. And I remember I was meeting with our elders and I, I kind of broke down in tears. And I just, guys, enough's enough. Like, I just, I do not want to be in that building. I do not want to, I, I'm done with the... The, the public pressure, I'm done with the harassment. So we were, during these lockdowns, we were attacked by the media. Um, 
we were spoken out against by public health officials who at the same time refused to provide us with one page of document validating their measures. We still have a, a, a letter that's, that would be um, over two years old now that the health unit has never responded to asking us for evidence of mask wearing, for example. They just they don't have it and they won't provide it to you. It's just like, you do what we tell you to do. Don't ask any questions. Sit down and shut up. That was essentially their response. But quick to go to the media and beg us to close our church almost as if, you know, they're suddenly they become humans again, right? Suddenly it's like we're, we're the, the one health officer was like pleading, begging the Harvest Bible Church wouldn't resist lockdowns, the same guy that won't answer your questions or return your emails. Mm -hmm. So privately, he's not your buddy. He's not helpful, but publicly he's trying to pretend that he's this loving, caring guy that just cares for the community. And I think that's been revealed to be a lie. Um, so there was that police officers of the church regularly. There was a time when for many weeks and I would preach, if, if you're in our auditorium and you look along the back, there's six doors. And I'd see people walk by and I'd look up thinking the cops are coming in. It was very stressful. I am a law-abiding citizen. I've never been in trouble with the law. So it was it was new. It was just such new territory to feel like I was constantly being watched, being lied about in the media, being harassed. We had some vandalism here in the parking lot of our church. Seeing pastors across the province that I would have considered colleagues speaking out against us or... Um, being completely silent. There, like there's some people that used to be friends of mine. I haven't heard from them for two years. They haven't said a mm -hmm. word. Um, those kinds of things were very painful. And I, I just kind of hit a wall at uh, one evening and I just, I just had enough. But the good, the good ending to that is, you know, I prayed through that. I asked the Lord to strengthen me and he did. And so I, f I feel and I, I know this is a subjective statement, but I feel most days I'm walking with the strength of the Lord and that has been a blessing. So there's a lesson there for the listener, right? Like we, we have minds that need to be used. We have words that need to be uh, stated. We have personalities that God can use, but we also have to walk with the strength of the Lord. Because if we don't have the strength of the Lord carrying us forward, we all have a breaking point. Mm-hmm. And so this, this is not just about strategy and understanding the legal apparatus. This is a spiritual battle. And we do need to rely upon the strength of the Lord to encourage us. And he has encouraged me many, many times through this. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, what would be some of the things that maybe were unexpected blessings that, that uh, took place? Well, there was no calculation in my mind as to how things would turn out. I, I didn't know. I didn't know what to expect. These were uncharted territories. I had, I had no idea what the outcome would be. At the beginning, I, I probably wrongly assumed that our actions and our resistance might lead to the demise of our church. Um, and I'm not sure if I... I reached a point where I thought that was definitely going to happen, but I, I think I assumed that, okay, this is probably the end. Like we're going to lose our building. 20 years of ministry is going to go more or less down the tubes and, you know, we're going to kind of go out in a blaze of glory, but <laughs> this is the <laughs> end of it. But the, the opposite has been true. While there's been a lot of pain along the way, you know, our church has grown significantly and while some people don't care about numbers, I care about numbers. I care about numbers because numbers equal people 
And if you care about people, I want to reach as many people as possible. So our numbers have increased significantly. Um, the Lord has blessed us among those numbers with seeing many, many people come to faith in Jesus Christ. More people tend to start thinking about spiritual matters, matters during a crisis. And mm -hmm. so we've had many people who, who have been baptized, who have made professions of faith in our church over the last couple of years that in their baptismal testimonies have talked about how the stance of our church or some circumstance in their lives have, have led them here. I even got a, a, a message from a couple this week that were talking about just how blessed they were um, coming into this church community uh, out of a Roman Catholic background, out of a church that closed, just how blessed they've been in many ways in the life of this church. And that that's such an exciting thing that this is, this lesson has been replicated across pretty much every church I know that resisted mm -hmm. the state. Yep. I, I, I think almost everyone saw dramatic conversions as a result of their stance. And the earlier they stood up, the more fruit they bore. So that, that I think is a, a huge blessing. And I would like to think that the Lord has strengthened me and sanctified me through this. My children have been blessed by this. A lot of the young people in our church are looking to the, the generation beyond them to set a pattern. And I think one of the great blessings of this is yet to be seen. Now we have a few, a couple generations beneath, beneath us who are galvanized, mm -hmm. who realize, look, this is, we are in an anti-Christian culture and they may be called upon to suffer in a greater way than you and I ever have, but now they've at least seen a little bit of what that looks like. So this is a, this is a generational fight, I believe. It's going to take place over a long time, but in the moment, okay, even if we haven't won the battle, in the moment, we're already winning hearts and souls to Christ and we're galvanizing the younger generation to stand up for that which is true and right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things definitely stood out to me, seeing a couple of people lose their jobs over the stance they took and watching, kind of watching from a distance the way their kids responded to it and then seeing and thinking to myself, those kids are going to know how God provided as well yes. for their family through yeah. that time, right? And, you know, I was, I was, I'm still kind of fascinated at, how different personalities responded. So it, I didn't have like a mental list in my mind of, you know, ranking everybody in the church from most spiritual to least spiritual or most culturally aware to least culturally. Yeah, yeah. It's not like that. But there were some folks that I thought for sure would push back who cut and ran really, really quick. And I think continue to live in a way that has dishonored the Lord. And then there's others that, in all honesty, I, I didn't think would necessarily stand up to the degree that they did, and they did, and I'm super proud of them. So it's interesting that the the way the way people present their tenacity or their perseverance or their commitment to Christ or their awareness of what's going on in the world, the way they present it is not always accurate. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people present themselves in such a way it's like this is a spiritual Superman, but when push comes to shove, they're they're Gonzo. Mm -hmm. And other people that have more of a quiet, um, methodical, maybe out of the the limelight kind of faith, end up rising up and showing that they have a ton load of spiritual depth. Mm -hmm. So that's been an interesting thing to watch in our own church. Yeah, it's good. Now, if you were to speak to, let's say, 
other churches or freedom fighters and give them, here's some lessons we've learned that would be a blessing to you. What might those be? Well, to the freedom fighters, I, I would say that they need to think about who they're trying to assign authority to. So I chose to speak at several protests with non-Christian people who were concerned about mandates, who are concerned about tyranny, who are concerned about the dire direction of our country, the involvement of the World Economic Forum in our political apparatus, these sorts of concerns. So I would go and I would preach the gospel or talk about the role of God in government. And I, I appreciate them, but I, I believe that their, their desire often is very different than my desire. So if you don't if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords and you're fighting for your own freedom, why are you fighting for your own freedom? Because you want your own freedom. It's it's just sort of a form of anarchy or radical libertarianism, both of which I reject. So I, I would meet liber, libertarian minded freedom fighters and they'd be like, my body, my choice. Well, I know they're going to apply that to the, the abortion debate as well. So like my body, my choice, I don't want to get a jab. And one guy in particular that was very outspoken in our community, as soon as he found out that I was not a pro-choice abortionist, said basically our friendship ends now. And he, he deleted me on social media because in his mind, it was just all about pro-choice. It was all about radical freedom. It was all about self-governance. It's a form of anarchy. And what the anarchist or the radical libertarian needs to understand is that, liber is that tyranny and anarchy are actually the same thing. Tyranny is, is when a, a state official or a government or a king tries to exercise authority over the citizenry that he or she has not been bestowed by God. And the anarchist is a person that refuses to submit to God-appointed governing authorities and just wants to live their life with themselves as God. So it's just a matter of who's going to be in the driver's seat. The tyrant wants to be in the driver's seat. The anarchist wants to be in the driver's seat. I reject both tyranny and anarchy. My concern is that Christ is in the driver's seat. So when the state comes and says to the Christian church that these are the terms upon which you can worship or do ministry, they're usurping their God-given authority. They just don't have that authority. And I know my listeners have heard me and others speak to this many, many, many times, that there is a limited sphere of authority delegated to every human authority. Pastors have limited authority. They, have, they do have authority to discipline and call their people to worship, but they don't have exhaustive authority over their people. Husbands don't have exhaustive authority over their wives. Children, parents don't have exhaustive authority over their children. And the state does not have exhaustive authority over the citizenry. So we had a, we had a conference here a couple of weeks ago, a Mission of God conference. And one of our Christian lawyer friends, Andre Schutten, made this point that if you draw a line, people think liberal. Um, tyrannies on one end, anarchies on the other, but if you bend the line, they actually join. It, it's symptomatic of the same fundamental problem, godlessness, a mm -hmm. refusal. Tyranny and anarchy are godless because they refuse to allow Christ to sit on his rightful throne and to, to demonstrate to the world that he is king and kings and lord of lords over all. Mm -hmm. So that that's the message I would have to the freedom fighter is that you are no more comfortable um, competent to rule your own life than the state is to rule your life. Nor do you have the authority to rule your own life. Christ alone has the authority to rule your life. 
And he's not just inviting you to worship him. He's demanding it. He's commanding it. So it's not some passive, hey, if you want to, if you want to have your best life now, you should su surrender yourself to my, my authority. It's no, I'm demanding it because he already is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that, that's the message I would have to the freedom fighter. Now you asked me about the message I would have to other churches. So I have a suspicion at this point in time that, that those who have not resisted, those that continue to justify the mandates and the tyranny of the state and the interference of the state over the worship and ministry of the Christian church probably aren't going to be listening to me and probably aren't going to be convinced. At this point in time, if you're not convinced, you're probably not going to be convinced. So I'm not sure I want to spend a great deal of time sort of re-delivering yet another message to those that think compliance is beneficial other than just to call them to repent and to assert the lordship of Jesus Christ over the worship and ministry of the Christian church, to assert the lordship of Jesus Christ over the ministry and worship of the Christian church. It's as, it's as fundamental and clear as that. So if you, as a um, Christian pastor or elder, say to your people, look, there's a terrible virus flowing through our church. We're looking at the um, you know, Levitical laws. Uh, we're asking anyone who's sick to stay home. That's that's within your authority. That's in accordance with God's word. But when you have refused to allow God's people to gather and to worship, unless they're wearing masks or unless they're vaccinated, you're, you are now the, the tyrant pastor. You have transgressed your own sphere of authority. You've wheeled authority over your people that God has not granted you. So you need to repent for that. And you need to repent for for failing to call the people of God to worship. And you're not going to get away with the excuses. Like a lot of guys now, they're like, oh, that's, it's legalism to say you have to meet every week. You're just an antinomian. You're just trying to find loopholes and excuses. It's very clear. We've been doing this for 2,000 years. You meet weekly to worship the Lord, to preach, to pray. You don't close your church at will, and you certainly don't close your church because it's convenient. For those that have been faithful, I would say to them, God bless you. And I believe God will continue to bless you. I know it's been hard on a lot of faithful churches. By the way, there are many, 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 many faithful churches that were never charged. And God bless them. So I would just say, as we've maybe focused a lot of attention on guys like myself or Jacob Rayum or Mike Thiessen or Tim Stevens or James Coates, and you know some of those guys got greater penalties than I did. Some might've got lesser penalties. It's not about us. Give honor to every faithful pastor. So there's many faithful pastors across our country that did the exact same thing that we did. They weren't charged. I'm thinking of John Bellingham in, in the Welland area, a very, very, very faithful man. I'm thinking of Andrew DiBartolo up in Kingston, a very, very, very faithful man, very outspoken. But for whatever reason, they weren't charged. Well, they were just as faithful as I was. So I don't, I don't need an extra pat on the back because, you know, I got four tickets and someone else got three or, you know, I got, someone got three, another guy got two or Coates went to jail and I didn't get to jail, go to jail. This is not a comparison game. This is not like who got the bigger beating. If you were faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, that's something that will help you to sleep well at night about. Mm -hmm. And the Lord will honor that. And it's not even about me. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to a time and maybe I can fade into the woodwork 
you know, right now the Lord has called me to a position of uh, prominence, I guess you could say, whereby I, I feel I have a responsibility to steward my voice to a, a, a broad group of people across our country and elsewhere. I don't need that to feel good about myself. Frankly, I don't really want it. I've never really even wanted to be a lead pastor. It's just the place God has put me. And for as long as he wants me to steward that, I'll, I'll try my best, but I don't need this. And uh, hopefully the time will come when, you know, I can kind of fade into the woodwork and, you know, other people can guide and direct the, you know, the broader Christian church. I'd be super happy with that. But just being, it's, I guess it's as simple as when you're faithful to the clear teachings of God's word and gathering your people for, for public worship weekly, it's, there's no ambiguity about that in scripture at all. Gathering your people for worship, not making your worship service is a matter of convenience because, well, we're canceling because it happens to land on Christmas or we're canceling because there's a, the, the government says we should. Not making worship a matter of convenience, but just convictionally calling your people to worship. The more you do that, the more God is just going to pour out his blessings upon you. Mm -hmm. Not only in the eternal order of things, but also in the here and now, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you pointed that out because the, the point of this podcast isn't to draw attention uh, to us to say, hey, look at what we're doing and look and, what we did, right? And if it is, shame on me. Mm -hmm. shame, shame on me if in suffering a wee bit for Jesus, I somehow feel that I am deserving of greater applause than another faithful brother or sister that has been equally faithful but just wasn't spotted by the authorities. Or if somehow I rob Christ of the worship that he is due. So this is the irony of this, right? Why are we calling our people to worship? Because we want, we do not want to rob Jesus of the worship that he is due. So if as a result of suffering by standing for the Lordship of Christ and giving him the worship he is due, somehow we're looking for worship, that's gross. And we yeah. need to repent of that. Yeah. So we need to search our hearts and we need to make sure that we're in it for the right reason. And that doesn't mean that we, you know, we're forbidden from speaking the truth about the reality of our suffering, or that doesn't mean that you can't honor your leaders if they have done well. Uh, and that doesn't mean that we should be somehow afraid of or ashamed of prominence in ministry. If, if it's for the Lord, we're not ashamed of that, mm. but it's not about us. It's about the glory of God. Mm. And I want God's name to be glorified long after my name has been forgotten. Yeah. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. I, I, I really mean that, that it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our church. It's not about the Niagara Declaration. It's not about the reopening Ontario Church's declaration. Although the, these, these historical documents and personalities matter, but it's not about that. Mm -hmm. It's about the supremacy of Christ over creation and over his church. And that is something that's worth dying for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just as you say, that reminds me of um, Philippians 1, 12 and 13, where Paul is speaking about his imprisonment and he kind of, obviously what we've gone through, what you've gone through is not on par with that, but it is just highlighting the point that he's saying, you know what, my, 
he wants people to know the reason he's talking about his imprisonment isn't to draw attention to himself, but to say, Hey, you know what? It actually has served to advance the gospel. And then he says, it's actually emboldened people. So here's just in case you were concerned about your public witness being affected by jail time, it's actually going to spur things on. Right. Well, that's, that's a good, that's a wonderful passage of scripture to remind, for me to be reminded of, and for our audience to be reminded of the, there's been this weird narrative that's been promoted among a lot of evangelical Christians over the last couple of years that somehow by submitting to the state, you aid your witness. We've now had two years to show that's not true because churches that have complied for the most part have not grown. They've suffered. They've got no brownie points from the government. The government cares even less about you now than they used to. They're not going to be coming to you looking for your counsel and advice and future epidemics. They're not going to be looking for you to somehow shape their view of the state and church. They now see you as their subjects Mm -hmm. and they're going to treat you as their subjects. They are going to ask for you to promote whatever narrative or crisis happens to be on the radar at any point in time. I can guarantee you that it's already happening. So I, I think there is, um, you know, the, the, the Bible, the Bible is true, but it's super awesome when you see it being working itself out in space and time and in space and time, we have seen the gospel advanced in our own generation. And we have seen tangible results from our stance that will pay eternal dividends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you actually thinking about eternal dividends and or maybe even just think thinking next generational, let's say 20 years from now, you're sitting down with some grandchildren and, you know, they're asking you questions. They're sitting on your lap or maybe they're a little older than that even. And, or maybe they're even playing this podcast back, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe they'll be uh, re- listening to this recording. What lessons would you want them to know? Well, when I am sitting there as an old man in my rocking chair, uh, with my 25 grandchildren. <laughs> 20, <Spread okay>. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> but just put a little pressure on the kids there. Um, but if, if the Lord blesses us with grandchildren, and he already has, you know, we have two on the way. One might be born as early as next week. Um, looking forward to that, by the way. And w- certainly would appreciate the prayers of my audience for, for my daughter who, who um, very well might deliver a child. Uh, and by the way, just, just to kind of get off into the weeds a little bit, one of the prayers that we prayed when our children uh, were being shaped in their mother's womb is that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ at the earliest possible age. Mm-hmm. And I'm already praying that for the two grandbabies that the Lord has entrusted to my daughter and my daughter-in-law. So that's a worthy prayer yeah. to be praying for the next generation, to be thinking about, so your question's a good one because what it really betrays is that you're thinking about the generational impact of the decisions that we make now. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many pastors think that way. When you're making a decision to defy the state, when you're making a decision to open your church on Christmas, what instead of thinking just about the expedient issues of the moment, have you thought about what precedent you're setting and how those decisions affect future generations? And 
it seems to me that future generations, unless there's some sort of radical reformation soon, future generations will have it worse than we have it. So there, the, the things that young people are being confronted with and taught today literally were unfathomable when I was a child, just unfathomable, especially in the area of human sexuality. Mm. It wouldn't even have crossed your mind that drag queens would be normalized and be in our schools, that homosexuality, that transgenderism would be more popular than the teachings of the word of God pertain to human sexuality. You wouldn't even have thought that. It just would have been unfathomable. So it's probably going to get worse. So they're, they're, they're going to, I don't think it's going to be a scenario whereby they're sitting at my feet saying, Hey, Gramps, like, what was it like back when the days were tough? Mm -hmm. It's going to be Gramps. Like we, we have some serious issues that are different than the ones you dealt with, but how did you, what were the principles? How did you withstand the state at the time? Cause we're dealing with some pretty, pretty bad stuff. So part of it, so there's kind of a, sort of a reactive and proactive. There's some reactive and proactive lessons. So reactive, you can't, you can't bend the knee. Just never bend the knee and pay homage to the state or whatever go other god happens to be rearing its ugly head. So you just don't do it. Just on principle, you make a decision now. I, I don't bow to the state. I don't bow to other gods. I'm not an idol worshiper. Don't live in fear. Um, speak the truth, speak the truth consistently, speak the truth in love. Mm. Just keep speaking the truth. Don't concern yourself with the consequences. A lot of churches that wanted to stay open, I, I know why they didn't stay open because they didn't want to lose their insurance or they didn't want to be fined. We heard stories of churches that were, there was one in our own town that said they were going to stay open. And as soon as they heard that we got charged, they changed their mind. Another mm. church up in London, they were, they wanted to stay open, but they, they, they didn't, they said they can't afford it. So they just closed. So that, that, those aren't principled responses. Those are responses based upon fear and terror. Mm -hmm. And you just can't be that man or woman. You can't be that church. So that would be a lesson I'd, I would uh, give to my grandkids. And then the other one would be, be proactive. So we have to build new institutions. We have to build stronger churches. We have to train more pastors and elders. We have to train more missionaries. We have to you know, create new schools, new educational schools, institutions. When young people are going to college and university, they have to think very clearly, like, how can I find a career that's not cancelable? Mm. So my kids are all smart kids. I, I would just say that without uh, any false humility there. They all did well in school. They could all go to university. Most of them have chosen to take other routes because they know that if they go to uni universities and pursue a lot of the programs that they would normally perhaps be considering, that they are in a cancelable occupation, that they are now beholden to the state. So you have to think strategically. Of course, we're never free and clear from statism, but if, I'm, if I want to meaningfully provide for my family, what are some career choices I can make that insulate me on some level from status control, from coercion. Mm. The state's already got away with it. So they'll, they'll try it again, for sure. They'll just try it again in a different package. So those are some strategic decisions. We need more entrepreneurs, more, more um, business leaders. I also would encourage people not to cut and run, uh, not to hide. The more people that are out front in the fray, verbalizing their concerns, not just leaving it to you know, two or three big miles to do all the talking, but verbalizing their concerns, 
the state listens to that, right? Because they're not principled people. They're, they're, they're polling either through literal polls or just by observing what people are saying. And the more people that say, yeah, you're not getting away with that again, or, or we don't agree with you on that, the more the state is going to question whether or not it should wield that kind of tyrannical authority. So those would be some some lessons that that um, you know I would pass on. And obviously, I'd undergird all of those with a beefy sermon or two on the sovereignty of God and submission to Christ and faithfulness and Christian wi- uh, witness. And then tell the stories of how God has redeemed us and blessed us and encouraged us through some very dark times that I, like I've grown more in the last two years than in my entire life. There's no mm-hmm. other two year period of time in my almost half century on earth where I have grown more and been tested more than in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. And how, how can that possibly be a bad thing? That's a really good thing. And I, I, I cherish it. Mm-hmm. As you talk, I just think about the fact that we're a moment in history as well, and maybe a principle of zooming out the lens thinking, and you've taught us as a church this often, but thinking big picture, right? Not just thinking about our own short lives, but thinking big picture, and then ultimately thinking about God's glory overall, right? Um, So some really helpful things. Uh, thank you, Aaron, for sharing. Thank you for your, your testimony and, and your example that has, I think, made many of our listeners more bold to speak, uh, the word without fear as Timothy, uh, or Philippians rather shares. And I think that's, that's very true. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Uh, hopefully you've enjoyed it and can pass it on and bless others with it. A reminder that this episode and all of our episodes are available on the Fight, Laugh, Feast network over on their app. So make sure to download that or to uh, check it out over on pursuitofglory.org, which is Pastor Aaron's personal blog. We hope you'll tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Rock.